King Jesus rides to Jerusalem. No one can hinder thee. Hosanna to King David's son. No one can hinder thee. He rides upon a donkey small. No one can hinder thee. The King of Peace, the Lord of all. St. James. Glad you guys are here. Don't really have a whole lot of announcements for you except to say if you want to participate in the Zoom Bible study, uh, send me an email and I will send you a link to that. Uh, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, uh, which is Paul's uh, famous chapter on love. And we're thinking about what does that have to do with the spiritual gifts? Because that chapter, it's not about marriage. It's not in a text about marriage. It's in a text about church relationships and what does love have to do with spiritual gifts. So if you're interested, let me know, and I will. Um, you can text me or email me, and sometime between now and 11:30 when the class is, and I'll shoot you an invitation to that. All right, uh, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins to God. O Almighty God, merciful Father, 
I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then a few verses down, uh, skipping this part of the story, some of his disciples say to him, you know, what are you talking about? What's, that, what's all that with the sower? And so he explains it to him. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when
the epistle reading uh, for today is the rest of Romans 7. Uh, We read this, well, I read it first service last week. It's, uh, I mean, you'll see when we get in here, it's convoluted. Paul's thinking uh, takes twists and turns, and hopefully uh, we'll have a good discussion about this and unpack what he's talking about. Starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did that which is good, you have to remember back to last week, he's describing the law, God's law, this revelation of God's character. It comes from God, so it's holy and righteous and good. Those are the three adjectives he used. Did that which is good, did the law then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Okay, so remember this. If you were here last week, remember this. Paul is not saying, he's not talking about spiritual versus physical, as though, you know, like the pure soul is good, but the body's bad. He's not talking about supernatural versus natural. He's talking about life, spiritual life, in other words, life controlled by the Holy Spirit, 
versus life in the flesh. Not the body, but life under Adam. He said back in, at the beginning of chapter 7, we're not in the flesh anymore. He doesn't mean we're not in the body. He just means we're not controlled by the old Adam. We're not controlled by the old nature anymore. So this is what he means by spiritual and flesh. Uh, I'm of the flesh, sold and understand, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law of God that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so... That first line there in verse 13, did that which is good, did the, law, did, did the law which is good bring death to me? By no means. So this is an understandable question if you can go back to the previous two Sundays, to the first part of chapter 7, where Paul starts off by saying this, the law of God is less like the directions for living and more like a bad marriage. Being under the law is like being in this relationship that you're trapped in and really the only way out, he says, is for you to die. That's what being under the law is like. But also, what he talked about last week, the law of God is holy and righteous and good because it reflects God's character. It comes straight out of his own heart. Okay, so if that's the, if that's the case, that the law is, the law comes from God, but the law is like a bad marriage, does that mean that being married to God is like a bad marriage? Paul says no, because there's this other problem in there. The problem's not with God. The problem's not with the law. The problem is, it's not even with us. More on that in a second. The problem is with sin. That's what he says in verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Okay. So the rest of, the, rest of chapter 7 is going to be talking about this new character in the story. Not really a new character. But he's bringing in sin as the explanation for why God's good law and us don't match under sin. It's because with sin, it can't match. So let's talk about sin for a few minutes. And I'm super proud of myself because I'm going to say three things that Paul says about sin here. And they all start with P. And so I want you guys just to witness uh, my poetic abilities. And uh, be as proud of me as my mom was who was in the first service. Also proud of my starting things with P. So we'll do this pretty quickly, or I'll try to do this quickly. Paul's going to say that sin, that law, that law of God shows sin to be uh, one, a first, paradoxical, a second, uh, parasitical, and then third, powerful. Uh, sin is paradoxical, it's parasitical, and it's powerful. So first of all, the law of God shows sin to be paradoxical. This is what he means in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again with me. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing that I hate. Like, there's a part of me that doesn't want to do this, and I just keep on doing it. There's a part of me that, doesn't wanna, that does want to do this other thing, and I just never can do it. Uh, uh, verse 18, last part of verse 18. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sin makes us inconsistent with ourselves. Sin is inherently paradoxical. It creates paradoxes within me and you, within our behavior and within our thoughts. Things that we know that we don't do. Things that we know are wrong that we continue to do. Remember when you were a kid? This is like uh, three times a week when I was a kid. You know, I would do something that was stupid or it was wrong or it was stupid and wrong and my dad would say to me, what were you thinking? And I would say, Every, you guys can fill in the blanks here. Every, every parent has these conversations with their kid. I would say, I don't know what I was thinking. And then he would say, well, that's the problem is that you weren't thinking. Right? This is actually not just a little kid problem. This is a human problem, is that we do things that are inherently inconsistent. Not just, all, all of us do. This is a believer problem. This is an unbeliever problem. Paul's going to talk about this in uh, Romans chapter 2, a few, verse, a few chapters earlier, and he's going to say it like this. Let me read it to you. Gentiles, they don't have the law. Gentiles never had Torah. They never had anybody come down and stand on a mountain and say, I'm going to write down what I want you to do on these tablets of stone and give them to you. They never had that. But by nature, they do what the law requires. By the nature that God gave them, created in his image, they know what right and wrong is and they do it. That makes them a law to themselves, even though they don't have Torah. They have God's law written on their hearts. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Because the law of God is written on everyone's heart, our conscience bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts, this is like Romans 7, right? This like, I want to do it, but I can't do it. I don't want to do it, but I do do it. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men uh, by, by Christ Jesus. Because we have the law in our hearts, it creates this dissonance between what we know is true and what every human being knows is right and what we all as human beings do. And I, I did say that. I said every human being knows that stealing is wrong and lying is wrong and murder is wrong and their conscience bears witness against them, Paul says in Romans 2, that it's wrong. And now you're going to say to me, if you're thinking along, well, I, that may or may not be true. Sometimes I lie and I feel guilty, but... Sometimes I lie so much that I don't really feel guilty or even think about it anymore. But people, there are people who steal and don't feel a tinge of conscience about it at all. What about them? Does that mean the law is not written on their hearts? And Paul says, no, that it is. It either, their inconsistent thoughts either accuse or excuse them. What does he mean? He means this. You might not feel guilty anymore when you lie. You've just seared your conscience so much. You've taken that part of God's image in you and you have dulled it and calloused it to the point where you no longer feel bad about it. But when somebody lies to you, you instantly will say, that's not fair. That's not right. Why is that? Because your conscience is flaring up that lying is wrong. C.S. Lewis makes this point in the first couple chapters of his fantastic book, Mere Christianity. I would encourage you to go read the first couple chapters if you're interested in this topic. And he's saying that all human beings, he calls it the law of nature. Uh, Paul says, actually in Romans 2, Paul uses the word nature, human nature. Human nature made in God's image. C.S. Lewis says this, every single person knows what right and wrong is. Else, he says, here's an example, 
What, and, and mere Christianity was written right after World War II. Else, what were we going on about? What, what were we going on about the Nazis being wrong? Like, if there's no such thing as right or wrong, if racism and genocide is wrong, isn't imprinted on our hearts, then we have, here's what he says. Is, I'm going to give you sort of a, a, a direct quote, paraphrase probably a little bit. We have no more right to tell the Nazis they were wrong to kill all those Jews than we are to tell them that, we, that their hair color is wrong. All it is is just a matter of opinion. Unless there is this law of God that's absolutely right, printed on our hearts. And you see this all the time. Like, you know, so many people in our culture today, this is a postmodernism, will say, well, there's really no such thing as absolute right and wrong. You know, every person is responsible to decide for themselves what truth is and what right. Those same people will turn around and say, but racism is absolutely wrong in all instances. And, and they're right about that, but they have no philosophical basis for believing that because they don't believe in right or wrong. All they're really saying is, what, what they're doing is they're doing Romans 7. They're living inconsistently. They know that racism is wrong, but because they want to hold on to that power of not submitting to a higher law, a higher authority, they're willing to live with the inconsistency that Paul's talking about in Romans 7 and that he's talking about in Romans 2. And what I'm saying this is, here's the payout for this. Be aware that sin is inherently paradoxical. There is an intrinsic insanity to sin. There's an intrinsic nonsense to it. Do not be quick to defend yourself. When somebody's critical of you, don't instantly think that you're right because 95% of the time, we think that we're right and we're not. We think that we're doing good and we're not because, like Paul says, our desires are good. The law of God's put in our hearts. We are just chronically incapable of keeping it. Just be aware of this. There's an intrinsic paradox to sin. Sin is also parasitical. Look at verse 17. He says this. So now, if all this is true, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says the same thing down in verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is going to be hard for some of us because some of you are tough guys. You know, you're like a personal responsibility. The thing that's wrong with the millennials is they don't just like take personal responsibility for themselves. And here's what Paul is saying. It's not being critical of millennials, of course. But what Paul is saying is, is that actually there's, sin isn't really a you problem. It's actually not even your fault. Now, this has to be joined up together with what he says in Romans 5. When he says that when Adam rebelled against God, we sinned inside of him. So in that sense, it is our fault. But in another sense, the sin that humans struggle with, they really don't have a choice. It, dwell, it indwells them. He's going to use indwelling language in Romans 8 to talk about the Holy Spirit. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But right now he's saying that fallen humans are indwelt by sin. I said, I had this, I, I've told some of you guys this story. I had this realization um, a, a few years ago with, with one of my kids that was struggling with fussing a lot. This is when they were a little bit younger. And we're kind of working with him for, uh, you know, three or four months. And then at one point, we actually had this conversation, and he said to me, he said, I know I don't want to fuss, but I can't stop. He actually said that. And at that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's me. That's like me. I'm sitting here put, pointing my finger in his chest saying, stop fussing. Just don't do it. Stop now. You don't have to do it. Make the choice not to fuss. And the fact is, 
He wants to do right, but he's not capable of doing right because sin is a parasite. It gets inside of you. It's not you. It gets inside of you and eats you from the inside out. Right? So let me just, big picture. God created Adam and Eve as humans, not as sinful. Sin is an intruder. It's an alien. It's managed to insert itself into our hardware, and now it infects us like a virus. The problem isn't to scrap the computer. The problem is you need somebody to get in there and get the virus out. The problem, you know, the problem isn't like, Harry, Harry, just stop fussing. Stop right now. The problem is that he has something inside of him, which is the exact same thing I have inside in me, that I need somebody who's bigger than me or him to take it out. So two things I want us to do with this, thinking about this. First of all, be easier on other people. Lots of times, and this, this kind of works with the whole paradoxical thing from the first point. Lots of times we're real quick to be like, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that. I'm going to have a hard time forgiving them. And to, st- to step back and realize that what Paul is saying here is that sin is something that everybody struggles with. First of all, it's paradoxical. Don't imagine that you don't struggle with it too. Second of all, it's a parasite. It's not them. It's the sin that's inside of them. There's a certain sort of like, hey, take responsibility for yourself that doesn't actually get at the problem. You know, and what I'm saying is not like, I'm not saying just we should be nicer to each other and be gentler with each other when we sin. What I'm saying is, is that putting my finger in Harry's chest actually doesn't solve the problem. Because sin is a parasite, it doesn't get it out. It just bruises his chest. And to take account of that when we deal in our personal relationships with each other, that the problem isn't other human beings, the problem is brokenness and sin. Also, though, and along with that, you need to take it easier on yourself. Now, for some of you, this would, if this is not for you, close your ears. For some of you, you need to be told, you need to wake up and take this thing a little bit more seriously. You know, you, we walk around thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm good to go, I'm doing good. And you actually need to say, hey, sin's actually a serious problem here. But for some of you, who like take your sin, how can I say this? Well, I was talking with uh, uh, Jamie last night about somebody who I don't know. And uh, we were talking about somebody who like is kind of getting into the Christian faith and learning and is kind of maybe doing the Martin Luther thing a little bit. Like, well, you know, I've rejected God and maybe not, I don't know if this is where this person is, is at, and kind of run from the faith and maybe had a little bit of a good time and now it's time for me to suffer a little bit. You know, i got to pay for this a bit. That that's, again, that's, that's taking it the wrong way. It's not, you don't need to suffer. It's the sin that needs to get weeded out. You're bruising your own chest. And I'm not, this is not like, you need to learn to love yourself. Be nice to each other. You know, be nice to yourself. Right? That's not the point. The point is that it actually doesn't fix the problem. Berating yourself or hating yourself or trying to like, even if it's like less emotional and more just like, I need to learn how to fix my problems. I'm going to try really, really hard not to fuss. That's missing the problem. If sin is a parasite, you need worm medicine. You don't need to poke yourself in the chest. All right? Now, all that coupled with what Paul says about sin is because it's been joined to us through Adam that we are responsible for it. God's wrath does hang over the human race because of its sin outside of Jesus Christ. But also to listen to this. It's not you. It's sin who's dwelling in you, Paul says. Okay, last thing, sin is powerful. It's paradoxical, it's parasitical, it's also powerful. Look what he says in verse 13. Uh, Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good. Okay, we talked about this last week. How does sin use the law to produce death in me? Sin uses God's law to create covetousness in us. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said last week, if it's okay. 
Covetousness, that's Paul's language from the beginning of Romans chapter 7. Sin says this. The enemy did it to Adam and Eve in the garden. He does it to us all the time. Look, you know, hey, God's law is good. I'm sure God's law is good. He's a good guy. He wouldn't probably make up bad rules probably. But honestly, it is a law. His law, it is in charge of you. And as long as it's a law, that means that you're not in charge. I mean, it might be a good law, but still, wouldn't it be better if you were in charge? And I mean, doesn't God want you to make the decision? I mean, really, God knows that you would want to be like him. Certainly, he would be not God if he didn't love you enough to let you validate that on your own and make that decision for yourself. In other words, the enemy takes the law, and he doesn't try to slander God or even slander the law. He tries to stir up covetousness in us this desire to be out from underneath the law of God. That's how sin uses God's good law to deceive us into sinning. But what God uses with that is, God takes that, the enemy does that, God takes that, and here's what he does. Keep on going in verse 13. In order that, here's the purpose, that's the language of purpose, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see what's happening? Through the commandment, the, sinful, the sin becomes huge. It becomes bigger beyond measure. And now the question is, well, what good is that? Sin becomes even bigger. Well, on one hand, it's not good news. It's pretty, you know, it's grappling with your own brokenness. If you really honestly do it with the horror that is your sinful nature, it's no fun. But the good news is this, is that if that is going to get solved, we're going to need to know what's at stake here. We're going to need to know how bad the problem is if it's really going to get solved. So, so look, you got cancer. And, you know, there's the surgeon. And the surgeon has got this scalpel, and he's like, I want to get in there and see what's going on. And I'm going to mix metaphors here if it's okay. And the enemy comes along and says, I'm not saying the surgeon's a bad guy, but do you think you really should trust people who walk around waving knives like that? I don't know. That knife does not look like that would be very comfortable. I agree. I agree with him. We all agree in the room. Consultate. There's a problem. But like maybe some herbal tea would be better, you know, or just some ibuprofen. Maybe that would help. And so you, we avoid the law and we deal with these things on a sort of surface level. But what the law does is it shows sin to be as powerful as it is. You know, don't run from the dude with the scalpel. It's going to be painful. But what he needs to do is he needs to get in there and slice you open and say, this is pretty bad. This is stage four, and unless we do something right now, you're done. And so to, to, to say, okay, the law's going to show sin, and to accept that as something that's good, because God, we're not to this yet, this is Romans 8, okay? Because God's going to take that, and he's going to say, okay, I've, I've exposed sin to be as powerful, now we know where we're at. This is pretty nasty stuff. And what the law does is it shows, it, it puts on your chart, here's what's wrong. And now the surgeon can get in there and he can take care of it. All right, this is what the law does, okay? So um, it's not, it's just, here's what we can take away with this. Sin is not, look, the problems that you have are not psychological hangups. I'm not saying you don't have psychological hangups. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be taking ther getting therapy or maybe even taking medicine. I don't know. But if that's where it stops for you, if it stops with the herbal tea stuff, you're not grappling with how bad it is. Look, the problems that you have in your relationships are not just because of your strong personality. They're not just because of your social eccentricities. They're much worse than that. And what the law does is it comes along and says, 
You know why you have a hard time like keeping family members happy around you? You know why your friends don't want to hang out with you so much? The law of God says it's because you would like to be loving, you would like to be self-sacrificial, but you can't do it. Sin is powerful. And what we have to do is we have to face up to that fact so that the gospel can do its work. This is another way of saying the famous Tim Keller line, right? The bad news is this. You're far, far worse than you ever thought that you were. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that you are loved and forgiven in Christ to a far greater extent than you ever could have imagined possible. And as long as we try to live in the middle there, like there, I'm, I know that something's wrong with me, but really it's not that bad. I'll, I can pick up one of them chicken, books for, ch- chicken soup for the soul books at Books A Million, drink some herbal tea, maybe pop some Advil, and I'll be good. The problem is that we're living in this middle world of like inconsistent blindness. And instead of saying, okay, this is horrible. I'm in bad shape. I'm terminal. And then letting the gospel do what it does, that's, that's the path. This is the path of redemption. This is actually not the law, but this is, this, this is the way to get to new creation in Romans chapter 8. Okay. All that, so that, that's what we're saying about the sin in, in Romans chapter 7. That's what Paul says, is that it's paradoxical, it's parasitical, and it's powerful. And I want you to take all of that, and I want you just to scrap it. Because it's not about you. It's not about you. Now, I'm going to have to argue for this, and I want you to hang with me. And maybe you're going to end up disagreeing with my take here. And I'll, I'll be cool with that, because I actually disagreed with this take about a month ago. I've had my mind changed in the past month. And I might have my mind changed back if I kept on studying it for another month. So uh, just kind of hang in here. Paul's not talking about Christians. Now, I know he says I a lot. He says I, if I, you look again at verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. I don't understand, my, I'm of the flesh sold under sin. He's talking about himself, right? He's talking about his own experience. And I'm saying, no, he's not talking about himself. Well, that seems foolish because he actually says the word I. Let me start off by saying this. If you've been tracking with us from Romans 5 through 6 and into 7, you'll know that Paul's main point here is that you, as Christians, if you, for those of you who are believers, you are no longer under Adam. You are no longer slaves. And in fact, let me point this out to you if I can. Verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh. But this is not in your bulletin. But back in verse 5, he says, back then, while we were living in the flesh. So what is it, Paul? Is living in the flesh a thing in our past under the law? Or am I living in the flesh now? I think that it's in the past. This has been the whole thrust of Romans 6 and 7 is that you're not living under the, in the flesh anymore. In verse 14, look there, he says, I am sold under sin. I'm a slave to sin, he says in verse 14. Look in verse 23, he says, there's a law waging war within me, making me captive. Now, am I sold under sin and a captive? Or... Like what he said back in chapter 6, verses 6 and 9. He says, death no longer has dominion over us. Our old self was crucified with Jesus so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Death no longer has dominion over us. I think that's the ultimate reality. Now, the question is, why does he use the word I then? I have to, I have to try to argue for that. Here's what I think he's doing. Remember, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about Israel's path from Exodus in Romans 6 to the promised land in Romans 8, through Mount Sinai, Romans 7, Paul is identifying with that story. I am a Jew. That's my story. That's me. Also, 
it is true. I'm going to put these two things together now if I can. While it is true that you are no longer a slave to sin, that you have been liberated, you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. It is possible for Christians to be, act, I'm going to say be, act like slaves to sin in this life, but it's fake. It's not true of you. You really aren't. You just, for whatever foolish reason, sometimes we go back there. Remember, I gave this illustration a, a month ago when we were in Romans 6. It's like this. You're in the prison house of sin. You are under the dominion of death. You are a slave to sin. Jesus comes along, and he unlocks the prison cell and opens the door, and you come out, and you're free. Now, as Christians, sometimes we like go back in the cell and we shut the door and we're like, oh, I'm trapped in here and like I'm a slave to sin and I, what I want to do, I can't do and what I don't want to do, I do. But, the, but the, the ultimate reality is that the door is actually unlocked. You could push it open and get out anytime you want. It's fake. The slavery is fake. That's the point that Paul's making is that it's possible to, to live under a certain sort of slavery, but you're not really a slave because you've been liberated by Jesus. Third reason why I believe that it's talking about the past, is this. Look at the very end of this chapter. He's talking about all these contradictions and the paradox of living with these inconsistent desires and actions. And he says this in verse 24, wretched man that I am, he doesn't use the word for male there, he uses the word for humankind, the generic term for humans. Wretched human being that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, you know he's already been delivered. Paul's a Christian. He's described in Romans 6 what it's like to be delivered. He's talking about this experience of getting out from under this experience of being like conflicted, of being underneath the power of sin, of living with this parasite in control of you, of living with this paradox, constantly like trapping and blocking your mind and your actions from doing what they should do. Who's going to get me out from under this? Now, he's going to get to it in Romans 8. His answer is actually in Romans 8, but he can't resist. This is kind of cool. He can't resist like this outburst of joy at the thought of this. So like he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He's going to go back at the, at the end of verse 25 to this, his train of thought. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But meanwhile, at the beginning of verse 25, he can't resist this like burst of joy. Thanks be to God. God's the one who's going to deliver me. Deliver is the understood verb here. Thanks be to God for delivering me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when he gets to Romans chapter 8, he's going to unpack that. But he can't resist that, that, that like exclamation of joy at the notion that I don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to live conflicted anymore. You don't have to live with a parasite in control of your body anymore. You don't have to live underneath the power of sin. You are no longer slaves. In Jesus Christ, you're completely free to do what you know is right to do. You're completely free to stop fussing. Not because your dad is punching your chest because the Holy Spirit has liberated you from slavery to fussing. You're completely free to love and serve Jesus. Again, Romans 8, he's going to unpack this and, and explain what happens. But this is the problem. The cancer is the sin. The solution is going to be life in the Spirit through the resurrection power of Jesus in Romans 8. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would keep on working out this resurrection power of your Son, Jesus, in our lives. Uh, your law is good and holy and just, and we love it because it shows us you but it exposes our sin too, Lord. Convince us one more time that that sin has been uh, defanged and neutered and rendered powerless by the blood of your son, Jesus. And it's because of that blood that we're able to come into your throne room and pray. Amen. Okay, stand with me and we'll continue in prayer.
Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for being such a loving God and so good to us, and we thank you for your good gifts. We thank you for the gift of, the, of your law. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your word. And uh, we thank you for sanctifying us and molding and shaping us to look more like you, to look more like the description of you and your law all the time. This is not something that we've accomplished or that we're doing. It's something that your Holy Spirit is doing through us. We thank you for exposing the problem for what it is, for not leaving us disillusioned and naive about the cancer that's riddling our body and our soul. And we thank you for doing the surgery to get rid of it. We thank you for doing surgery on yourself first and then for healing us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning that you be with everybody who is sick and who's struggling, uh, whether it's with uh, the coronavirus or all the other things that we're sick and struggling with, uh, mental issues and physical issues and social issues, uh, financial issues, work issues, uh, relational issues, all these issues, uh, Father, we need uh, your help. And so we're coming to you this morning and asking you to make all of these things new in the power of your gospel and for the sake of your holy name. I want to especially pray this morning that you would continue blessing Barb as she uh, is recovering from knee replacement surgery. I want to, play, I want to pray that you would bless Ethan as he's in the hospital uh, getting tests done and that you would allow the doctors there to come up with some solutions to help him be with all of us and keep us safe physically and spiritually uh, now and in the new age to come. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray all these things only in the name and by the power of the blood of your son, Jesus, who loved us so much that he gave up his life to justify us, who loved us so much that he rose from the dead to sanctify us and to give us the down payment of the Holy Spirit towards our future glorification in the new creation. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray now together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Shall still 